Back at the uh, Evangelical Ministry Assembly this summer, Dick uh, Lucas, who many of you will have heard of, observed that while ministers were often quite ready at uh, ministers' fraternals to bring papers on all kinds of theological issues and practical matters of the Christian life, whenever the request went up, now who's going to bring us a paper on prayer, it invariably led to all the heads in the room going down, all the top of the heads being shown. Because, as Dick Riley uh, observed, each man knew what a sham and a fraud he felt himself to be in this whole area of prayer. And uh, I stand before you tonight in that uh, way. Uh, The phrase, do as I say, not as I do, echoes in my ears at this very point because it must be clearly stated by myself at the very outset that I am not an expert on prayer. Quite the contrary, although I've been a Christian for over 30 years, I am woefully aware of a very impoverished and uh, failed prayer life. Perhaps like many of us here, I find it easier to read, to write, to speak for 55 minutes rather than to pray for five minutes in any given hour. And uh, that's how I come before you this evening. I come as a fellow struggler, but uh, a man who would echo the heart cry of those disciples of old, Lord, teach us to pray. But I also come as a messenger of hope, because that's a bit uh, despairing. I think we can all identify with that, and that's real. I want to come also as a messenger of hope. In agreeing to undertake this lecture about a year ago, uh, though acutely aware of my shortcomings and failures in this very practical area of the Christian life, I was at the same time very attracted by the thought of the discipline of looking afresh at this subject. And it's been my fervent prayer that uh, in the process of challenging and encouraging myself to look at this issue, the Lord might be pleased to help, to encourage, to stimulate, and uh, to challenge each of us here likewise. I'm heartened that uh, in the briefing that Colin Hart gave me a couple of months ago, the emphasis was upon the practical. And uh, I'm heartened by that because I can think of 101 other people who are far more uh, theologically able to bring a, a learned paper upon prayer. But quite rightly, Colin pointed out what was needed was not another learned paper upon prayer, but perhaps some practical help with our prayer life and that it might rekindle our heart. Uh, and renew our spirits in this whole area. So uh, the aim really this evening is that as individuals and as churches especially represented here, the Lord would be pleased to do something uh, lasting, strategic in our prayer life to his glory. Now you've got this outline in your hand there and uh, you'll see that I'm going to begin with three introductory questions. The first is, what is prayer? I wonder how you would define prayer. When I looked through the Bible, I couldn't actually find a definition for prayer itself. So I went to the preacher's resort, the Collins Dictionary, and uh, there I found that prayer is a communication to a deity in the form of supplication, adoration, praise, and thanksgiving. Well, I guess that uh, that's about the best that a pagan could say about prayer. And whilst it might go some ways towards describing some of the elements of the content of prayer, it's totally, woefully insufficient to describe Christian prayer, the Christian and prayer. Praise, supplication, thanksgiving, yes, of course, they're part and parcel of any prayer, 
but in of themselves they're insufficient to describe what prayer is in God's sight and in the life of the believer. So let me, in its place, offer you this definition of prayer. It's uh, inadequate, I've no doubt. It can be vastly improved upon, and maybe you want to jot it down and uh, improve upon it yourself. But for the means of focusing our thinking this evening, I trust it will serve a good purpose. I suggest that prayer is the means by which the Christian maintains their personal communion with their Heavenly Father and their Sovereign Saviour through his Holy Spirit and by which dependence upon him, concern for his glory, is expressed, nurtured and grown. Let me give you that once more. Prayer is the means by which the Christian maintains their personal communion with their Heavenly Father and Sovereign Saviour through his Holy Spirit and by which dependence upon him, concern for his glory, is expressed, is nurtured and is grown in our lives. You see, prayer for the Christian is primarily relational. It's the means by which we give expression to the reality of God indwelling in our life. Didn't Paul point that out in the book of Romans? What is prayer? It's to cry, Abba, Father. Daddy, in the Aramaic, isn't it? In the Greek, Daddy. In his book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Don Carson says this. When it comes to knowing God, we are a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in the pursuit of our own happiness and fulfilment. God simply becomes the great being who meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We're not captured by his holiness and love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. Now Carson goes on. In the biblical view of things, a deeper knowledge of God brings with it massive improvement in purity, integrity, evangelistic effectiveness, knowledge of the scripture, worship and much more. One of the foundational steps in knowing God and one of the most basic demonstrations that we know him is prayer. Spiritual, persistent, biblically-minded prayer. What is prayer? It's relational. It's the expression of being God's child and knowing God. Not knowing about God, knowing God. And nurturing that relationship, just surely as we seek to nurture and grow and develop any human relationship that we value. Secondly, why pray? Well, of course, if asked, all Christians would instinctively agree that we ought to pray, and furthermore, that prayer is both vital and necessary. Yet, when pressed, they're not exactly sure why prayer is so essential in God's economy. In fact, if I ask you that question tonight, I wonder what you would reply. Why pray? If, as the Bible affirms, God is sovereign, he's going to achieve his will anyway, why bother to pray? We believe, we affirm, we trust in the sovereignty of God. So why pray? The chief reason why Christians ought to pray is not simply for our personal benefit or that of others. 
It's not even that God commands it, so it must be good for us and for his purposes. Ultimately, the reason why we pray is that prayer is the way God has ordained to work out his purposes in Christ, in the gospel, and thereby get glory to his name. Prayer is the way, it's the means, it's the channel by which God, in his sovereign purposes, has purposed to work out those purposes. Don't ask me why, don't even ask me how, but that's what the scriptures affirm to us. E.M. Bounds, who's written a great uh, book on prayer, many of you would maybe be knowing that, he's many, many books on prayers, he puts it like this, the prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries out his great work upon the earth. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which God carries out his great work upon the earth. You see, God shapes the world through the prayers of his people. You remember in Psalm 2, the son, that messianic psalm, the son is told to ask of the father, and he will be given the nations, the heathen, as his inheritance, the earth for his possession. So in that psalm, we're reminded that the establishment of God's glory, the prospering of the gospel in the hands and through the life of the son, are actually wrapped up in the prayers of the son himself. Yet remarkably, we discover that as the Bible unfolds in its revelation to us, it is the work of God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, in the people of Christ, that attunes us to that great design and co-ops us as partners in that gospel enterprise. Throughout the book of Acts, therefore, when you get into the church age, prayer is seen as the avenue through which the gospel advances and conquers. Do you remember in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the disciples, the apostles realized that the success of the gospel and the progress of the church was dependent in a preeminent sense upon them devoting themselves to prayer. If you are here tonight as a Christian leader, a Christian preacher, an elder, a minister, a pastor, whatever, what is your prime duty? It is the ministry of God's word and the ministry of prayer. We often forget that. It's the two together. In all the age of the church, God has most blessed those men and women who have prayed. It's absolutely vital in carrying out God's work on earth. And how much we estimate and how much we emphasis we place upon prayer shows how much we estimate and place God in our lives and the progress of the gospel in our priorities. In other words, why pray? Because praying men, praying women are a necessity in carrying out God's plans for saving men and women. Isn't that remarkable? That he would take hold of weak, ineffective, struggling Christians and use their feeble prayers to carry out his purposes. But that is how the scripture views prayer. He has made it so. Well then, if that's the case, question three, why do we find it so difficult? One's reminded of the words of Robert Murray McShane. There is nothing a natural man hates more than praying. Those of you who know the story of Murray McShane, that, that famous uh, preacher from Dundee who died, was he just 30 when he died or 33? I can't remember, somebody will tell us later. But 30, 38 was he. Well, he was, 
Well, we won't ever be. I thought it was 30, but uh, he was a, certainly a young man, younger than most of us here. But he was a great man of prayer. The very act and activity of prayer, you see, acknowledges our inability. Why do you pray about anything? You're praying about something that's beyond your capacity to control or fulfill. Isn't that what you're doing whenever you're praying? Even if you're praying, uh, Lord, bless my son, little Johnny today, watch over him. Why are you praying like that? Well, in the act of prayer, you're acknowledging that you can't be with little Johnny 24 hours of the day protecting him. Every time we pray, we acknowledge our dependency upon God and his sovereignty and his omnipotence. Only in extremis does the pagan, does the unregenerate man cry out from his trench, God, get me out of here and I will. But no sooner has the crisis passed than independence is once again declared. The first mention of prayer in the Bible comes in Genesis 4, verse 26, where we're told that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's a very important little phrase in our understanding of prayer. In a sense, it's the foundation of prayer. It gives us a vital clue as to one of the great purposes of prayer, namely to acknowledge our dependence upon one greater than ourselves. But conversely, it goes to the very heart of the problem when it comes to prayer. The reason we find it so hard to call upon the name of the Lord is that ever since the fall, we all have an instinctive drive for independency from God. Prayer is an unnatural activity. For the unregenerate man, totally unnatural. Since birth, you see, we learn the rules, don't we, of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And prayer flies in the face of those deep-seated values that are entrenched and ingrained in every one of us. Prayer is an assault upon our autonomy, upon our independence. It's alien to our proud nature. Just think of that hymn to secularism. I did it my way. Do you remember one of the lines in it? And not the words of one who kneels. I did it my way. I didn't have to depend upon some father figure in the sky. I didn't need a crutch to see me through life. I did it my way. And I didn't do it in the way of the one who kneels. That's a hymn to humanism, isn't it? It's the expression of independence from God. So the reason why we find it so difficult to call on the name of the Lord is that ever since the fall, that's been our natural condition. And for the believer, that first cry for help, that first cry of repentance and forgiveness for mercy, opens up the way to a restored relationship with God. And in a sense, it's the prototype of every subsequent prayer that we pray as a Christian. And every time we pray, we're acknowledging our dependency upon God. And yet, it also launches us into a battlefield in the heavenly realms in which the spirit is willing... And yet the flesh is weak. But we'll say a little bit more of that later on. Three questions then by way of introduction. Now I want to give you a biblical overview. It is a very cursory overview, I must say, um, because I really want to give time to some of the practical side of our prayer life. But I think it's important that we do take this uh, whistle-stop journey, if you like, through the Bible uh, when it talks about prayer. Even the most cursory overview of prayer in the Bible illustrates that prayer in the mystery and in the providence of God is the most strategic and vital aspect 
of our lives as God's people. Let's consider some of the themes and aspects as we journey through the scriptures. Prayer, you see, is all about the glory and vindication of God. Virtually all the prayers in the Bible have this common thread, the glory and vindication of Almighty God. A concern for God's glory pervades the prayer of Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, the psalmist. Just think about some of the great prayers of the Old Testament. Abraham intercedes for godless Sodom. Why and on what basis? On the basis of God's justice. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? The appeal, you see, is to the vindication of God's character and God's name amongst the nations. Moses appeals to the Lord to withhold his hand of judgment from a rebellious, wayward Israelite nation because it will destroy God's reputation amongst the pagans. Elijah, there on Mount Carmel, pleads for the true God to be revealed and worshipped. David, time and time again in the Psalms and uh, in the stories of his life, prays for the vindication of God's purposes worked out through him. Yet alongside this concern for the glory of God, another great lesson is taught that God works out his grand design in response to the prayers of his people. We've already touched upon this. But I want to emphasize this. The potential for the prayer of one man, one woman, to change the course of events, to avert national disaster, is repeated time and time again in the book of Judges, in the lives of Hannah, Samuel, Elisha, Nehemiah. And supremely, of course, in Elijah, whom the New Testament in the book of James holds up to us as the example of effective prayer of a righteous man. And what does James want us to remember about this man, Elijah? He says he was a man just like us. That's how it puts it in the NIV. A man just like us, prone to depression, prone to weakness prone to failure, with all the foibles and the weaknesses of his character. And yet, he was a righteous man. And God worked out his purposes through that man in response to his prayers. As the Old Testament unfolds, the history of God's dealings with people, we discover another thread, namely what I've called the perversiveness of prayer in the life of God's people. Hagar prays for guidance. Jacob prays for protection. Solomon prays for wisdom. Hezekiah opens the window upon God's sovereignty over the nations for us. But all these and many other prayers beside is based upon God's revelation of himself. And it was intensely personal. Prayer, you see, was the way in which that personal relationship was fostered, was nurtured, was developed. And one example that we often overlook when we think about prayer is that... uh, Man Enoch in the book of Genesis. Enoch walked with God and surely he experienced the ultimate expansion of his prayerfulness by being transported into continuous communion with God. Enoch walked with God and he was no more because the Lord took him. He was a man of prayer. The Psalms, of course, have been called the prayer book of the Bible. Though it's interesting to note that only five of the Psalms are specifically designated as prayers. Psalm 17, 86, 90, 102 and 142. Psalm 1, the gateway into the Psalms, lays before us two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. 
The way of the latter, that is the righteous, is sustained and nurtured by meditating day and night upon the law of the Lord. And it depicts the life of the believer in terms of fruitfulness and prosperity. And yet, as we go into the Psalms, it's entirely realistic. That is worked out against the backcloth of suffering and sadness. And many of the subsequent Psalms show us with powerful realism that the way of the righteous is often a way of present frustration and perplexity. Particularly the perplexity of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. And at times in the Psalms we have outbursts, don't we, of frustration, as well as in the prayers of men like Job and Jeremiah. And I think those prayers are great because they encourage us to honesty with God. We don't have to put a mask on with God. We don't have to put a pretense. He knows us through and through. He knows us better than himself. And the wonder and the glory and the attraction of the Psalms is surely this, that people are real and honest and intensely honest in prayer with God. When they're hurting, when they're frustrated, when they're perplexed, they tell him so. And it's only as the righteous grapple with their doubts and their fears, their grief and their perplexity, through this avenue of prayer, that eventually they are brought into a better mind and a better heart. Remember that famous instance of David. Do you remember he's, he's envying the, the unrighteous, the ungodly? They never get ill. Their children never die. They never have catastrophes. And he begins to envy them. What am I doing? Being a follower of God. And all this goes on until what? What happens? What changes his mind? You know the Bible well enough, you tell me. What happened? Then he enters the sanctuary. He enters into his relationship with God. He reminds himself who God is. He looks at the big picture. He lifts his eyes to the horizon. It's a great psalm, isn't it? It's a great lesson in one of the great uh, efforts, or one of the great uh, effects, rather, of prayer. We move on to the New Testament quickly. And as you move into the New Testament, you find a new emphasis in prayer, namely the fatherhood of God. Prayer, we discover from the lips of Jesus, isn't about eloquence, it's not about the length of our prayers, but it's drawing near to a heavenly father whose full knowledge of us, far from discouraging us from prayer, is an incentive for prayer. The example, the teaching of Jesus on prayer is saturated, isn't it, with the fatherhood of God theme. In the garden, he prays, Father, if it's possible, allow this cup to be taken from me. On the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. In urging his followers to prayer, the comparison again is drawn with fatherhood. If you then, though you're evil, said Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you? You see, if we've never grasped that core truth about prayer, the true nature of prayer, then we've never understood prayer as God sees it and as God intends it. It's about a relationship. God is our Father. And the comparison is of a father who is fallen and sinful, he nevertheless knows how to care for his child, how much more your perfect, sinless, heavenly father. 
and even our Lord's so-called model prayer. Whilst, of course, having the glory, the honour, the reputation of God, the expansion of his kingdom paramount in its concerns is prefaced with that sublime phrase, Our Father. We pray, you see, to a king about his kingdom, but a sovereign who has intimate care and concern for his people, their daily needs, their daily provision, their forgiveness, their protection from evil. Far from being overlooked by this sovereign God, it's because he is a sovereign God that he has the power, the ability and the concern to care for his children. When the New Testament uh, moves on, it links effective prayer with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Luke particularly is concerned to link the ministry of the Holy Spirit with prayer and with mission. He's at pains, isn't he, very often in, in the Gospel and in the book of Acts, to show the linkage between the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of prayer in facilitating the proclamation, the coming, the spread of the kingdom. So when you go through the book of Acts, you'll find markers put down. And those markers are generally in context of prayer and the Holy Spirit. So the disciples give themselves, Acts 6 verse 4, to prayer and the ministry of the word. What happens? The church grows as it is expanded out. It's thrust out through persecution. But those markers continue on in the book of Acts. Likewise, Paul's great prayers. We read one, John read one for us in Ephesians at the beginning. His prayers in Ephesians and Colossians pick up this great theme. The magnificent scope and purposes that God has revealed to us in Christ are always along the lines that we ought to live up to our calling. Yes, God is concerned about the the small matters of our lives, but he's also concerned about the big matters. He wants us to pray for big things, the big things of growing in godliness, the big things about the spread of the gospel, the big things about my brother, my sister in Christ, going on with the Lord. That's the intent that's the intensity of his prayers indeed isn't it that we might grow in a deeper understanding of our hope in order that our understanding of our hope and the god who is behind that hope might enable us to live as we ought in the present even if the present means suffering even if the present means perplexity and heartache and tragedy but our prayers and our lives speed the coming of that day so let's summarize this briefest of Bible overviews, with the three R's. Not the reading, writing, and uh, arithmetic. Three R's, I'm sure you don't have those three R's down at... Uh, you, you do, at uh, the writing one. I've never been able to work out for those English students amongst us how that begins with an R, but there we are, somebody will tell me later. But let's think about those three R's very briefly. You see, firstly, as I've tried to major on as we've gone through, prayer flows out of relationship with God. Do you remember in Mark 5, Matthew 15, uh, Jesus' apparent unwillingness to answer the sorrow Phoenician woman? What was he doing in that instance? He was highlighting the importance of a proper relationship with God before you ask. It's the ground for all true prayer. In his classic book upon prayer, O'Hallersby defines prayer as letting Jesus come into our hearts. Letting Jesus come into our hearts. He cites, of course, Revelation 3, verse 20, which in turn calls upon that famous discourse in John 14 to 17 and those uh, promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the relational activity of God in the life of the believer, and those little phrases, 
we will make our home with them. Father, I'm praying, I in them and you in me. It's all relational. Secondly, prayer is the Christian's response to the revelation and the nature of God. Prayer, you see, is responding to who God is in his multifaceted character. Effective prayer isn't the result of the earnestness of the one who prays, but rather the character of the one to whom we're praying to. Very important to remember that. He alone is omniscient, omnipotent, he is all-knowing, all-powerful. And that's the God that we're coming to. It's to remember the character of the God that you're coming to. If you, though are evil, know how to give good gifts, conversely, the Father you come to has this kind of character. Relationship, the response to the revelation of God's character. And thirdly, prayer is concerned ultimately with the reputation of God. His glory, his honour. Now, if you go through the great model prayers, we might call them of the Bible, including the Lord's Prayer, you see time and time again the priority that's given to praising God for who he is, seeking his honour and glory. So the ultimate object of prayer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the honour of God's name. Yes, it's important we pray for Mrs Jones, who's going into hospital and all the rest of it. But the real focus of our prayer, the real focus of our prayer meetings should be grabbing hold of God, if I can put that in the right sense, to talk about his reputation amongst the nations. The desire for his honour, his glory. And what most glorifies God is the salvation of men and women. That's the real burden of our prayer life, isn't it? Now, before leaving this brief biblical overview... Let's uh, remember that prayer is never a solitary exercise. Every time you and I pray, every time we pray on our own or we gather together with others to pray, we must remember we're never engaging in a solitary exercise. Firstly, there's the present activity of the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that he is risen, exalted upon a throne, but he tells us that, it tells us that he is there to intercede for us. Hebrews 7, that great eternal high priest has entered heaven on our behalf, Hebrews 9.24, to make intercession for his people. He is our advocate with the Father, the Apostle John tells us in his first letter. He retains the feelings for our infirmities, Hebrews 4 again. And that's it pointed out to us by way of encouragement. Whenever we pray, the Lord is there praying for us and with us. Secondly, the present activity of the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Lord Jesus Christ intercede in heaven for his people, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell the Christian. The very first aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to create spiritual life in the first place. That issues in relationship with God are seeking and are crying after God. You see, the activity of the Holy Spirit in our life is multifaceted. He guides us. He comforts us. He empowers us. He convicts us. He witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. But in this area of prayer, I think he does one of the most marvellous works of all. Do you remember about it in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, where we're told that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses? There are three groanings going on in Romans 8. The creation is groaning. 
What's it doing? It's groaning, waiting for the day of the Lord and the liberation of God's people. We are groaning as God's people. We're groaning under the weight of sin. We're groaning when we see the state of the world. We're groaning with that anticipation. Lord, why don't you come? But most marvellously of all, we're told that God is groaning. He groans when he sees us pray. Look at Archer, 30 years a Christian, and he's still not very good at it. You can almost hear God groaning. And the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, but I'm there with him, groaning with him. God groans. What does it say? He intercedes for us. He helps us in our weakness. When we do not know how we ought to pray as we ought, he intercedes in accordance with God's will. Isn't that a marvellous thing? The work of God's Holy Spirit in us. When we feel our weakness, when we are all so conscious that we never pray as we ought, here's a wonderful reminder. He knows. He understands. He groans. He intercedes. And then thirdly, there's the activity of the church itself. In Revelation 5, the Lamb ascends to the throne and the praises and the prayers of the church are heard. In in Revelation 8, the prayers of the church become this effective factor that I mentioned earlier on in fulfilling (laughs) God's purposes. They are a fragrant incense to God. In the mystery of God, he takes those weak, those feeble, those faltering prayers and he works them out and through them he works his purposes. It's therefore a vital ministry of the church. It's the precursor to all evangelism. 1 Timothy 2 is all about evangelism and the gospel going out in the world, isn't it? If you've got an NIV, I think it heads it up, church order. It's absolutely nothing to do with church order, is it? It's about God who is God, the sovereign God, the one and only mediator between man and God is the man like Christ Jesus. And God wants all men to be saved. How does it happen? I want men everywhere to hold up holy hands in prayer. How does salvation come about? It comes on the back of the saints' prayers as they pray to God over the salvation of the lost. So to live the life of faith means to live by prayer. Jesus taught his disciples not only what to pray, but by example how to pray. So we have those parables upon perseverance, born out of the application of the character and the purposes of God, focusing upon the important and vital intercessory ministry of the church. Well, there's a very inadequate biblical overview. With all that in mind, why is prayer such a struggle? Well, we've already touched upon the main reason why we find prayer and the practice of prayer so difficult, namely our innate independence from God, even as Christians. Before we move in some practical suggestions how to grow in prayerfulness, let me flag up three other reasons that sometimes we can overlook. Three reasons why we find praying so hard. Firstly, because it's a spiritual battle. Never forget that. I sometimes go to uh, India. I've travelled also to the Philippines. We have a couple from the church who are missionaries out there. Any of you that have moved into uh, an Eastern culture will be very conscious, as they are, of the spiritual dynamic, of the spiritual warfare. You go down a street in Taiwan, where I've also been, you go along by a Buddhist temple or whatever, it's almost tangible, that sense of evil, that sense of the spirit world around us. In the West here, we're in a much more concrete uh, society, aren't we? 
where everything is rational and uh, scientific and so on. We must enter into the Bible's perspective. There is a spiritual battle raging. It's so easy to forget this fact. Writing to that first century church, living very much in an Eastern culture, with all the false gods around, with all the paganism in all its variety, with all those tangible expressions of the demonic and the supernatural, it wasn't hard, I guess, to understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Little wonder, therefore, it's hard to pray. Every reason, therefore, to put on the armour of God. To what end? That you might stand. And what's one of the evidences that we're standing is that we persevere and that we pray. We pray in the Spirit. Paul ends up, Ephesians 6, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And we keep on praying for the saints. But it's hard because it's a spiritual battle. That's the picture that's so often used about prayer. No wonder we find it hard. We come down the road outside here. One tank every fortnight, I'm told, that is built in Vickers. Uh, it's very nice. I, well, I don't know if you ask those guys who are building the tanks whether they actually want to go and use it in a real-life war. I guess there wouldn't be too many volunteers. The place would evacuate rather quickly. The Christian is called to a battle. We mustn't lose sight of that. Why do we find it such a struggle? Secondly, because of a sense of failing. Nothing so demotivates us, does it, as a sense that I've tried and I've failed. New Year comes around, right? I'm really, I am really going to do it this time, Lord. January the 6th comes around, failed again. Miserable failure, Archer. We set ourselves goals, we make resolutions, invariably we fail to achieve them. Well, what can we say? Join the club. Join the club. What we need in such circumstances is not to be harder on ourselves than the Lord is. Think of those weary, failing disciples in the garden. Now, you would have never gone to sleep, would you? You and I, we would have toughed it out that night. We wouldn't have deserted the Lord, not running away, but just, in, just stay with me while I pray. No, we would have stayed there, Lord. No, we wouldn't. But what an encouragement that that is recorded there for us, isn't it? A sense of failure. What did the Lord do with those failures? That's it, I'll find another dozen. Another dirty dozen, this lot are no good. No, not at all. He didn't do that, did he? Think what he made them. Great men of God. What an encouragement there for. Yeah, we all fail. But God's in the business of changing us. I reminded the congregation at Chesington last night that one of the best T-shirts I've ever seen, I think it must have been in the Philippines because they're far more upfront about their Christianity there, was a T-shirt which said, don't give up on me. And on the back it said, God's not finished with me yet. And that's what we need to remember, especially in this area of prayer. God's in the business of progressing us. Thirdly, we find prayer such a struggle because it touches our greatest vulnerability. As we saw earlier, you see, we spend our lives before we become Christians separate from God, alienated from God. But even when we become a Christian, even when we enter into the life of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit enters within us, we're not exempt from the problem. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That encapsulates the problem. And we're going to battle with this constant tension between the old and the new nature of a willing heart but a weak body. So thank God for the intercession of the Saviour who says, I have prayed for you and the indwelling work of the Spirit in our lives, groaning for us and with us. But it is a struggle. It's a struggle because it's a spiritual battle. It's a struggle because we all have a sense of being failures in this regard. And it's a struggle because it's actually touching us at our point of greatest vulnerability. And it's a lifetime's work to get us to where God's going to get us. Well, then, let's move on to developing our prayer life. I said at the outset I wanted to be as practical as possible. In the time left, I would just want to suggest some ways in which Christians have found it helpful over the years to stimulate their prayer life. There's nothing particularly novel in this, and uh, for many of you here, this will be old hat, but I trust it will be a help to some, especially perhaps younger Christians, embarking upon their Christian life. I want you to think about a pattern and a prayer diary. I'm not sure if the book is out there. I did ask for it to be uh, on the bookstall. In a very helpful little booklet upon prayer called Too Busy Not to Pray. Is it out there, Colin? It is. It is, good. Well, rush out there after and get it. It's a great book. Too Busy Not to Pray. In that book, Bill Hybels calls attention to the relational heart of Christianity. The believer walks with God. And he suggests that the key to developing our prayer life is a prior commitment to slow down. Be still and know that I am God. We came up this morning on the train. What a battle to get from Chesington up to Waterloo to King's Cross. And that's the first time I've done it for ages. I used to work in King's Cross for the first two years of my working life. But now my journey to work comprises 11 steps up into our loft. And I was reminded today how privileged I am. But in the hurly-burly of rushing and crushing our way to work. And life is busy nowadays, isn't it? In the 20th century, we are sucked into this culture of busyness. We need to slow down. To get into a pattern, into a habit that will stimulate and assist our prayer life. Such a pattern, Bill Hybel suggests, is to take that old acrostic, A-C-T-S... Many of you would have been taught that in the Sunday school. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Take a a sheet of paper, say a size of A4 paper, draw three horizontal lines and one vertical line down the left-hand side, about an inch in. Put A, C, T, S there. Now fill in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And Bill Hybel suggests... Fill in each of those little boxes each time you come to prayer. He's not suggesting a half-hour exercise here. But as we come to prayer, get into the habit of getting into a pattern. In that box, adoration, just simply meditate upon one aspect of the character or the attributes of God. His faithfulness, his love, his justice, his holiness... Think about his love. In that book, in that box, adoration. Lord, I'm going to thank you for your love expressed to me in your care for me this day, your care for my family, the way that you looked after us. But meditate upon how does God best express his love. It's not long before you're drawn to Calvary, is it? Thank God for Calvary. 
Do you get the idea? You can meditate, you can focus upon any one of the major characters of God. Use a hymn book. You know, coming to prayer doesn't mean you can't use other books. Use a hymn book. What are hymn books? They're poems at the end of it all, aren't they? Poems that that are a treasury for us of saints that have gone before. I find William Cowper's uh, poems perhaps the best of all. I hope I'm not a manic depressive. You'll have to ask my wife whether I am or not. But William Cowper was a manic depressive, wasn't he? But in the midst of his manic depression, my, he wrote some great hymns on prayer, didn't he? And what a help they have been to Christians. Not those that have been going along up here, but those that have been going down there. What a help they've been. Use a hymn book. Use a psalm. Use a passage of scripture. Confession. But be specific. Lord, forgive my sin. No, that's not good enough. Examine your life in the last 24 hours. Your speech, your conversation. Be honest with yourself. Do we really, in our Protestant evangelical tradition, take confession seriously enough? Yes, we quite naturally are averse to confessing to a priest. But we do need to confess to God and be specific. Lord, I'm sorry for that act of selfishness when I, I just didn't have that time for that person, that person that bores me to death, that caught me at the church door again today, and I made those excuses. Be specific for that exaggeration. Yes, Lord, I said there were 200 people. I know there weren't 200 people. It was actually 100. Well, Lord, no, it wasn't even 150, Lord, was it? It was 100. Well, okay, Lord, it was 84. Exaggeration. Lies. Be specific. Lust. Envy. In that little box, it's an easy thing to do in a sentence or two, just review, Lord, as I think about how I treated that person, I'm really sorry. It's a great help, isn't it, to us? Thanksgiving. Psalm 103. Forget not all the Lord's benefits to you. Remember that old, count your blessings, name them one by one. Well, we're so ungrateful, we don't often stop to do that, do we? But just to take time to thank God for his blessings. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Why is it that those who have so little are those who are often so grateful? That's been my experience in the Christian life. About people who have least in material terms, especially in Asia, in Africa, are often Christians who have a greatest sense of gratitude and openness and thankfulness and anticipation of the great day of the Lord. Well, we need to remind ourselves, forget not all his benefits. What a disappointment to the Lord when we fail to express our gratitude. Don't we get agitated with our children? What do you say? Thank you, Daddy. Right. How often do we stop and say thank you? (coughs) Supplication. By prayer and petition, says Paul in Philippians 4, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. How many times in the last few years has my dear wife reminded me that it's not down to me, it's down to God. I've needed that when I've been keeping her awake, tossing and turning at night over some issues in the church and so on. What are you worried about? It's not your church, not your building, not your project, it's God's. Thank you, dear. Crawl off downstairs. But we do need that reminder, don't we? It's God's work. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and then the peace of God will fill your heart. 
And in this matter of supplication, can I encourage you into a prayer diary? Maybe some of you use prayer diaries. Uh, I'm not saying this is the way to do it. I'm just telling you something that I found helpful. Uh, I didn't stick that label on just at this meeting, promise. It is a bit of a dirty old label now because it's been on there for the year. Here's a prayer diary for 1997. I've just taken a five-ring book, ring binder, create 31 days. Generally more than 31 pages in the book. But on each page, perhaps have space for four things. Firstly, for regular concerns. Pray for your family, for your friends, for the ministry that you're engaged in, for your personal development as a Christian. That's something you just remind yourself about. Pray about that every day. Have a little column there for short-term concerns, missions that are going on, meetings that are taking place, events that are happening in the next week or two. Then, pray for hotspots. One of the best books that I've read this year upon uh, prayer is this wonderful biography of James O. Fraser called Mountain Rain. And hotspots wasn't my idea, it's James O. Fraser's idea. For years, he worked amongst the Lisu people of China at the turn of the century. He was a man who could have been a concert pianist, who was a uh, first at Cambridge, he could have been a great doctor, whatever, gave it all up to go to, um, to work amongst these Lusu people. And for years and years and years he saw nothing happen. But he was a great man of prayer. And one of his great things was to identify the hot spot in the battle. It's a spiritual battle. And uh, do you remember in that, that picture of Moses up on the mountainside looking down on the battle... Why is he up there? He's there to pray so that the people will see he's praying for him, but he's looking upon the strategic point in the battle. And it's the point that James O. Fraser is making. There are always strategic points, aren't there? There may be times when we need to covenant together to pray over certain issues, to pray over certain people even, that the Lord would unlock that situation. Maybe there's a blockage somewhere in, in the life of somebody. Maybe there's a blockage in the progress of the gospel in a particular area. It's a hot spot. It's the key point in the battle at that particular time. Prayer hotspots. Identify them. Pray for them. And then, of course, missionaries use their prayer letters. have some prayer letters here, and uh, they come in quite regularly, and they go out quite regularly, but they're just kept in the front there, and uh, we can pray for those missionaries. Some are better than others at keeping us up to date and what to pray for, but the thing is, they are being prayed for. Now, they're, I think, an invaluable aid to prohibiting staleness. You see, the advantage of a diary isn't only that you pray regularly for people, specific people and issues each month, even if you only do it once a month, at least it's better than nothing, isn't it? But you can also add or subtract to that diary quite easily. Try and tie as many of your prayer requests to the big things of the Bible. Look again at Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians, the prayers of Paul. What does he pray for? Think about those prayers. Think about how they translate into your Christian life, into the life of the church in which you serve God in. Pray for the big things. Pray that people will grow in an appreciation of God and his purposes. That's how Paul prays, isn't it? A prayer diary. Then, linked to that, journaling and meditating. It's a bit of a mouthful, I know, and journaling, I think, is very much an American term. But you see, in terms, in addition to developing a pattern for prayer and a prayer diary, you may find it a help, especially in this whole area of kind of slowing down, 
is to uh, just keep a journal. Again, a book just that size or whatever, when each day you just take time out on your spiritual journey to write down in that book some of your experiences, some of your observations, some of your feelings, some of your struggles, some of your reflections day by day. To take time to journal isn't to spend ages in it. I'm not advocating that you spend more than ten minutes in it. But just look back upon the events of yesterday. Look forward to the events of the day. And as you think about them, journal them. Think ahead of the day to come. It could be that you want to write a prayer. Writing prayers, I think, is enormously helpful. It really focuses the mind. Coupled with that, of course, is meditating. Now, meditating gets a bad practice because it has all kinds of Eastern connotations for us. But Psalm 1 tells us to meditate. Mutter is the word in the Hebrew. You mutter, you mutter away to yourself. Or to wait upon the Lord, as the Psalms also puts it. You see, there are many injunctions to take time to slow down and to allow the Lord to speak to us. It's a relationship. Now, of course, the Lord speaks to us through his word. That's the prime way. I'm... You know me, that's the way I'm on about. But it is relational, and we mustn't exclude the Lord giving us what the old divines used to call inward impressions. Have you never had that in your life? That the Lord has just laid something upon your heart about a person, about a matter, about something in the life of the church? The Bible never separates the Word and the Spirit. Where the Word is, there the Spirit is also. But we must have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the assurer, who provides for God to make impressions upon our spirits as we meditate upon his word and as we come before him. Well, uh, what time do we start? What time are we finishing? You're all right. Just okay. Well, we're nearly there. Let me talk about ten practical issues or problems in prayer. Maybe there are many things here you want to come back on. Let's talk about these. These aren't exhaustive answers. I just want to flag them up as potential problems. First is, I'm indisciplined, busy, and I just can't find time to pray. It was W.E. Sankster, I think, who's been credited with saying, if you are too busy to pray, then you are too busy. Truth of the matter is that we find time to do what we think is important, don't we? I do. (laughs) We find time to do what we think is important. If it's important that I should go to that football match, you can be sure I will engineer my diary, I will plan my week accordingly. We find time to do what we think is important. Much praying, said somebody else, is not done because we do not plan to pray. It's far better to pray briefly and with brevity, just for a short period of time, than at length. As... Robert Murray McShane also said, the worth of prayer is not gauged by its dimensions. C.H. Spurgeon, it seemed to me, loved to wind people up, shock people from time to time, in order to get them to think, didn't he? And somebody uh, once came to him about prayer. And he said, no, I never pray for more than five minutes. Never more than five minutes, Mr. Spurgeon, said the man, in any one hour. But there's never an hour goes by when I don't pray. Well, that's what prayer life is about, isn't it? Don't set yourself unachievable targets. Be real. But do find the time 
for that which is of paramount importance. I put that little quote of McShane on the bottom of that sheet. What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Well, second problem is my mind keeps wandering off the subject. Well, adopt ways of avoiding mental drift. One of our young sons once said to us, um, Dad, he said, um, do you know about praying in your brains? That's a delightful title, praying in your brains. What he meant was he tried to pray in his brains without speaking out loud, and it was terrible because he kept thinking about Chelsea and how uh, Di Matteo hit that wonderful shot in the first 80 seconds to win the cup for the Blues and so on. Praying in your brains. Well, if that's a problem, it's a problem for all of us, why don't you speak out your prayers out loud when you're on your own? Do it in the car as you're going along. What if they think you're a nutcase next door? What does it matter if you're jabbing along? They're probably singing along to the radio anyway. They won't notice. But when you're on your own, verbalise your prayer. It's the best way of stopping mental drift. Our minds are like runaway computers, aren't they? There's got 101 things scrabbling around there at any one time. The only way you can stop that is to speak out loud. Many find it also a great help to vocalise their prayers in private, and it helps them to vocalise their prayers in public. Well, that's okay, but thirdly, I seem to drift into a rut and repetition. Well, that's why I would encourage you to pray a diary. Pray over the scriptures. Meditate upon the Psalms. Take Psalm 23, for instance. It's what I mean by meditating. Take that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. Just unpack it for five or ten minutes. The Lord. Who is the Lord? Begin to describe to yourself who this Lord is. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Unpack that. What does it mean? What does the Bible mean by shepherd? It's not all cuddly, furry little lambs, is it? Because sheep are the most stupid animals upon the face of the earth. And I think there's certain corollaries that the Lord's getting at in that point, isn't it? And the shepherd was a very authoritative person, but he knew them by name. That Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He leads me? Me? Amongst the billions of people on the face of the earth, he leads me? Meditate. Unpack the psalm. It's a great way, isn't it, to avoid getting into a rut. Adopt some of the prayers of scriptures and do exactly the same things with them. Take some of the hymns that we've mentioned earlier. Take some of the prayer journals of the great saints from an earlier age and from the present age. Experiment with writing your prayers. It's a very helpful thing. I think that's one of the most helpful things in Bill Hybel's book. Begin to write a prayer out. Not a screed, even if it's a sentence or two. It's a great help. Well, is there, therefore, a right time and a best way to frame a time of prayer? The answer is no. Develop a pattern that suits you. Just one quote from Jim Packer under this. He says this, Each Christian's prayer life is like every good marriage. It has its common factors, but it also has its uniqueness. Prayer is an active exercise of personal relationship. And like any personal relationship, you discover by trial and error... What is right for you? So, just because the Christian you most admire gets up at four o'clock in the morning to pray, doesn't mean that you've got to do it. It's a personal relationship with God. <coughs> Develop what is right for you. Fifthly, 
I just can't pray in public. Well, write your prayers down. Nobody finds it easy to pray in public. But when we pray in public, we're not doing so in order to pray, parade our supposed spirituality or theological understanding. We're doing so on behalf of one another, to lead one another, to encourage one another to the throne of grace. And we mustn't overlook that corporate responsibility that we owe to one another to help one another draw near to God in prayer. It's not our vocabulary, it's not our eloquence, it's not the length, the dimension of our prayer. Haven't you been in a prayer meeting where that young Christian has been the most encouraging, have stumbled through their prayer? I think, who is it? Larry Crabb tells the story at uh, once as about an 18-year-old who'd just become a Christian. And it was around the Lord's table, and he conjured up the, uh, the courage to pray. He said uh, he thanked the Father for dying on the cross for him. He prayed to, uh, to, to uh, Jesus as the Holy Spirit. He made 101 mistakes. He couldn't wait to get out the door. It was so bad. He, he was so disappointed the earth didn't pick him up and swallow him alive. And uh, as soon as the meeting was over, he was up out of his seat and he, he was tearing out the, the back of the church, determined that he would never enter that church ever again. But he said there was this aged man. He doesn't know how he did it because he was about 75, but he got to the door before he did. <laughs> and he stopped him. And he said, Larry, I want you to know that whatever you do in your Christian life, I am with you. And that man was a source of great encouragement to Larry Crabb. And look what the Lord has done through his ministry. But that's a great encouragement, isn't it? The young Christian who falters and stumbles over their prayers is often those that help us most. At a practical level, in a prayer meeting, remember the ABC. A, be audible. B, be brief. And C, be concrete. Lord, bless China. No. Lord, bless Qingming in Taiwan or wherever in China. I know Taiwan is not in China, but it would be if the Chinese had their way. Be specific. <laughs> be specific. When you're leading worship, do you give as much time to preparing your prayer as preparing your sermon? There's nothing unspiritual about writing out your prayers you're leading the people of God before the throne of grace six what should I do when I don't feel like praying first thing you should do is realize you're not unique again join the club tell God about it examine your life why why is it you don't feel like praying it may be unconfessed sin it may be you know you're not in right relationship with God it may be that it's not so much that, but you've got a wrong attitude to somebody else and the Lord by his spirit has just laid that finger upon you today. Alternatively, it may be none of those things, but rather simple tiredness, illness. You see, physically and emotionally and spiritually, we're bound up together, isn't it? You don't expect people to be on a spiritual high when they've got the flu, if you're in hospital, why must the pastor come and pray with you? It's probably the last person you want to see is the pastor to come and pray with you. Just want the nurse to come along, don't you, and give you a dose of something or the other. You see, there is that physical tiredness or illness. Don't be harder on yourself than God will ever be. Be realistic. Why don't you feel like praying? It may be tiredness. It may be because of prolonged illness. It may be a depressive state. It may be due to sin and a wrong attitude. Maybe it's none of those things at all, but simply coldness of heart. Again, take hold of the Bible. Use the Psalms. Use a prayer book. Use a hymn book. 
If it persists, talk to another Christian about it. Seek help, but don't go on feeling like that. What about unanswered prayer? Well, I think you better ask somebody back to give a whole paper upon unanswered prayer. It's a massive subject in itself. Now, on the assumption that we're not asking for the wrong thing, in other words, in opposition to what God has already revealed in his word, or you're not asking with the wrong motive, as James talks about, so that you can spend it on yourself, and thirdly, that you're not living in fragrant disobedience to God, then the Bible says you can be confident that your prayers have been heard. Sometimes it's a no, and no is as much an answer as yes. However much we might not like the no at the time. How many of you fathers here, or all of us here, have known as we were younger, we asked for something, and Dad said, not yet. And two years down the line, we're pleased he said, not yet, or even no, because it would have harmed us. We've lived to thank God that they've said no. You see, there are those things. Yes, no, wait, and so on. But we have to recognise also that sometimes we may never understand God's nose in the same way that we may never understand why God allows some Christians to undergo intense suffering, some to be cut off in the prime of their life, some to suffer in unimaginable ways. In the same way, why prayer for the salvation of loved ones or for the seriously ill goes unanswered. There are times when we will not know this side of glory. Sometimes what prayer does is to get us to the point where we say, not my will, but thine be done. And if it has been done, and if it is our view, think what was achieved in the life of Jesus through that prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. You see, we are far too time conscious, aren't we? We're too ready to jump to conclusions. I have no big answers to this and I do think it needs a separate looking at altogether it's a vast issue but sometimes we just have to get to the point of bowing before the sovereignty of God shall not the judge of all the earth do right well then is there a time you should stop praying about a specific matter personally I would veer to a qualified yes you see we've got to balance the broad generalities of men always to pray and never (coughs) cease Pray without ceasing. All those phrases that we find in the New Testament, the parable of the importunate uh, widow, the experiences of Paul, we have to balance all of that with that other experience of Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. Three times I begged the Lord to take this away. My grace is sufficient for you. I guess it was an answered prayer in that sense. But how do we know that he got a direct answer? Sometimes we have to live with that tension. Does it make any difference anyway? Back to this issue of the sovereignty of God. Apparently so. To quote the Archbishop, I'm not sure which one it was, I don't think it's the present incumbent, but he says something like this, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, so do coincidences. Though our use of prayer tends to be weak, it's simply because we are weak. Nevertheless, in our weakness, God is pleased to do his work. That's why I love that hymn of Cowper. (coughs) Satan trembles when he sees the greatest Christian on his knees. Is that what it says? No. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint 
upon his knees. It's a spiritual battle. But even that foot soldier causes Satan to tremble. It does make all the difference in the world, as I sought to point out at the earlier part. It's God's capital in heaven, displayed on earth through his saints. Finally, how important is the prayer meeting in the life of the church? In the day and the generation in which God has served us to serve him, called us to serve him, in the face, in this latter part of the 20th century, of the massive needs, the spiritual catastrophe that confronts the nation, then I think the thing that we need to do first and foremost is get serious about prayer. We've had just about everything else, haven't we? When are we going to take God and his word seriously about this matter of prayer? Ian Bounds again said, the church upon its knees would bring heaven upon earth. How important is the church prayer meeting? If you let every other, prayer, every other meeting of the church go by the board, don't let that one go. How healthy is the church? It's measured by the prayer meeting. I forget who it was, but uh, probably Spurgeon, somebody like that, coined the phrase, the powerhouse of the church. Well, in conclusion, we need to be realistic about our problems and our questions in prayer. Let's remember that we're never going to have all the answers this side of heaven. But that should not stop us praying. For prayer is more than asking. It's the most precious means of developing our relationship with God. You see, at the end of the day, our confidence in prayer isn't in how much we understand the dynamics of prayer. It's not in what methods by which we come to God in prayer. It's not how good we are even in disciplining ourselves in it. No, our confidence in prayer is God's character. He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he then also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I close with those, uh, that, those lines from that hymn of James Montgomery's hymn. Prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try. Prayer, the sublimest strains that reach the majesty on high. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. His watchword at the gates of death, he enters heaven with prayer. O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer thyself hath trod. Lord, teach us how to pray. Thank you very much indeed, Trevor, for that very thoughtful, comprehensive and practical talk on prayer. Uh, Trevor said that he will take some questions and comments. Can I just give you one minute only to stretch your legs if you must, but not to leave the room and talk to other, not to yourselves at the moment, to one another for a few moments, and then in a minute we'll come back and take questions and comments. Could we uh, resume our seats, please? I'm sure there are lots of comments and, and questions in folks' mind, and uh, please don't be shy about starting. Um, who uh, would like to say something first? I just it, always, yes. I just thought we'd the being specific in prayer of the Lord himself. I pray not for the world, but for these. Mm. Praying for his disciples at that time. And the first to whom the disciples were touched. So, in point of fact, he's reaching the world through his disciples and everything, through his prayers. Yeah. I pray not for the world. 
Thank you for that comment. Ian, I'm not sure whether you're uh, wanting to speak or just scratching your head. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, at one stage, the speaker said something about um, prayer by... Um, it's not the quantity, it's the quality, so to speak. Um, would he advocate trying to get large numbers to pray for a certain situation and uh, spend time doing that? Or is it best just, you know, just to concentrate on the small group you might have at hand? Did you get the question, Trevor? Yes. Would you like to answer it? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to, um, sometimes we misquote that Matthew 18, where two or three gather together in my name, there I am also. That's actually in terms of church discipline, isn't it? Uh, rather than, we often use that in terms of prayer, uh, where it's more to do with the, a problem in the church and how you deal with it. Um, I, I come back to the thing that the prayer of an effect of, of a righteous man is effective. At James 5, citing Elijah. Elijah was one against the 450 prophets of Baal. Um, and so I think the, perhaps sometimes we betray the sort of need to get um, sort of hundreds of people to pray about a specific matter, thinking that that in some way will be more effective. In We'd never put it this way, perhaps twisting God's arm, or we'd be much more impressed if ten people come about it than one. But I know, I know that's not where you're coming from, but I think sometimes that can be in our thinking, can't it? We must realise that um, the prayer of the single Christian is very important. But conversely, we must also remember that we tend to think very individualistically as Christians. And the culture of the Bible is corporate, isn't it? It's community. Um, and again, we're fashioned by our culture, our Western culture, which is very individualistic. Whereas the, the culture of the scriptures and certainly the whole thrust of uh, being the church is community. So there is that aspect of when the people of God come together to agree about an issue. That's what we're doing in prayer, isn't it? That's why we say the Amen. So be it, Lord. We're affirming that together. And Paul encouragement Well, that's the dynamic, yes, in terms of um, what it's doing to us. But in terms of what it's doing to God, uh, I don't think it makes the prayer in and of itself intrinsically more, you know, of greater value. But you're, in that sense of what it's doing in, in pulling us together, certainly prayer has that sort of horizontal dynamic, yes. Anybody else want to come in on that? Because, uh, yes. It's interesting that um, uh, Jeremiah 29 said that... Uh, after a God-appointed time, he would bring his people back from, from Babylon when they sought him with all their heart. Mm. And yet the only person we know who prayed, as far as I can remember, is Daniel. Mm. That's the only one that's recorded at the time. You know, So yeah, this is sort of the balance, isn't it? Yes. And uh, the history, I mean, you think of that, was it the revival that started in the 19th century in America? with that one man, was it Pennsylvania or America at the wrong place, but he hired a place in, in the business community, didn't he, and he advertised his prayer meeting. First day, just a couple turned up. Second day, there were 12. By, you know, within a very short period, it, it spread like wildfire. Um, but it started with the one person. Uh, there's, a, there's a 
a dynamic because God is, is prompting his people as well, isn't it? There's a two-way thing in, in prayer. But I think the, the, I, where, the, where you come back is to the, the, the value of the corporate prayer meeting. I do think there is that aspect of community, of people coming together to agree. Uh, and that what that does also is, is focuses the, the urgency and the realism of the issue, doesn't it? And heightens our awareness as a people of God in a particular church together over that matter. Is that why you're saying that the prayer meeting is the most important? Yes. Are you really thinking horizontally rather than vertically? No, I'm thinking vertically, but it has a horizontal effect, doesn't it? Um, somebody uh, asked my colleague the other day, what would the, um, if you know, we're preaching through Revelation, the seven churches Revelation at the moment, and sometimes you feel very remote from some of those churches, not least the ones that were facing persecution, where well, they all were in one measure or another, but for instance, the, the church at Ephesus. And he posed the question, what would happen if persecution came upon us, as it happens in, and has, is happening now in many parts of the world? His response was uh, to say two things would happen. Uh, probably there would be about uh, 10% of the people gathered here this morning to pray, to, uh, to, to meet the Lord, as there would be. In other words, the persecution would sort out the real from the counterfeit. And the second thing has happened, we would pray. Those, those people would give themselves to real, genuine prayer. And prayer is that reflection of the earnestness and the seriousness to which we take the nation, the state the nation is in, the state that we are in as the people of God, and the, uh, the only one who can really provide for that need. And all great movements of God have been linked with prayer, prayer meetings. I mean, I'm a preacher, but uh, there's a quote, isn't there, that the, you know, God can do without our preaching, but he won't do without our prayer. Lady over here. I was very struck when you were talking about the missionary in China who was good at identifying the hot spots. Right. And um, when you were talking about meditation, I wondered if you felt this was perhaps a way of God being able to show you where the hot spots were in your particular area. Yes, I think we've got to put away ideas of mysticism in meditation. I don't mean mysticism. But I do mean uh, mature, reflective thought. That's what James O'Fraser was getting at. He'd worked there for years, worked faithfully, sought to start all sorts of things off. There was just this hardness. And he began to, um, as anybody surely would in that situation, evaluate what was, you know, what was the issues here. Where, where, how was God going to unlock this? And he decided the way that God would unlock it was to see because it was a tribal culture, the chiefs, certain strategic chiefs of certain towns and their families, villages rather, become Christians. That was the hot spot for him, and he prayed for the conversion of those people. And he, he prayed over a prolonged period. It, it, it was a, a period of mature reflection and meditation. It wasn't as if he was kind of in a trance or whatever. He was using the faculties that God had given him, but thinking in a Christian way, in a biblical way, in a mature way about, like a general really, isn't it? That's what a general is called to do. You've got to think strategically. Yeah, there are all these needs around, but what, what are the key ones? What's going to unlock this? And that only time, you know, that's not a quick thing, is it? You've got to think about those things. I think we, we all uh, 
know situations, perhaps in in our church lives or whatever, whether there are, you know, if you're in leadership of it, you are aware there are certain areas that are a blockage to God working. And those kind of things you can't broadcast to the church at large, can you? But perhaps, you know, you can covenant together as a church leadership or whatever that you will pray over these issues. And (coughs) over the years, we've found that experience several times at Chesington. And sometimes it's a matter of praying over issues for, for a number of years as well before you know God has unlocked them. But they had they have unlocked, and they've they've had remarkable results. Really, it's it's identifying that. John was another. Um, no, no, carry on if you, right. want, if you want to. No. Yes, lady over here. Um, one basic thing that I, I don't think I heard you say was we should pray in the name of Christ. Jesus should be. Well, I think the scriptures encourage us to come, you know, it's this issue, do you pray to the Father, do you pray to Christ, and so on. Um, it seems that in, 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 in the prayers of scripture, obviously it, it emphasizes the fatherhood of God, and you come to the Father through Jesus. Uh, but sometimes you find people, prayers that are prayed directly to Jesus, no mention of the Father, and so on. What What's the sort of point you're making them well, maybe I've perhaps missed it yes but what are you doing what, what are you doing when you pray the Lord's Prayer well, Father. Father yeah Father yes but no when you're praying about the name what are you doing you say our Father in, who's in heaven hallowed be your name the Father's name it's the name you see is, is, is the reputation it's the character as I'm sure you'd appreciate so you, when you, you're praying for uh, something to happen in the name of Jesus. You're, 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 you're praying it for the glory of God. When you're praying for God the Father's name to be hallowed, it's, it's this mystery of the Trinity, isn't it? It's one and the same thing at the end of the day. You're praying for God to be glorified, his name to be revered and hallowed. Sorry, does that... Um... Well, I'm just thinking that perhaps people could think Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, well, I thought I'd made that point in terms of the relationship, and uh, yes. we're talking about Christian prayer. Yes. yes. So on a practical thing, you talked about meditation. It's something that I've found uh, very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. I think, and I thought what you said tonight about unpacking unpacking the scriptures is a an interesting way of looking at it. And, is, is that something that that, uh, that you, you're sort of recommending, that perhaps we take a psalm yes. or, a, or, or a hymn or something like that, but, but particularly perhaps something from the scriptures, and, and just take bits of it? Yes. Reflect upon just aspects of... I mean, like that thing that, you know, the ACT... ACTS, yes. The adoration, you know, reflecting on the character of God. There's so many aspects of the character of God. Um, but, you know, vast tomes have been written on just aspects of the character of God and just take hold of some of those things even do you know a verse chase if you want to sort of thing but then limit it down just to a verse or two and reflect upon that I think it's it, that just focuses the mind doesn't it and I, know, I know it must, must be different for different people but I mean can, can you do that in just a few minutes is it worth doing in just a few minutes You've talked about you talked about yes. sort of doing things driving driving along or in, ah, in your car yes, or whatever. Sorry. You know, I mean, it, 
No, I'm, I'm in terms of the. I mean, it, what I would advocate is, you know, like Spurgeon, don't be limited to think that you've got to be in a room on your own in order to pray. You know, you can pray as you're going on a long car journey. Obviously, you've got to keep your mind on the road, but there's nothing to stop you to pray for a couple of minutes praying out loud over a particular matter. You're just talking, talking away there. But in terms of, no, meditating on God and, and, and seeking his faith, I'm, I'm thinking in context more of a quieter time when you are on your own and you've got time to reflect. And it may be, you know, some of us, um, uh, there is obviously the, the call to, to seek God each day, to pray each day, but also it may be helpful for some folk to, to start where you're at, at least find one time in the week where you're going to give an hour to this exercise, even if you can't do it every day. Better to do that rather than uh, set yourself a target of half hour each day and be a miserable failure kind of thing. It's, it's, it's back to this thing, is there a right and wrong way? No, there isn't. Know yourself, but at the same time, know that you can create time if you have a heart to. And much praying is not done because we don't plan to pray. But in that thing of meditating, no, I'm not uh, sorry, suggesting one does that. You may be able to, be able to do that, and uh, we're all different, aren't we? But it's more in terms of perhaps when you're just in a reflective time before the Lord, thinking about, about aspects of his character.